Good evening, everyone. Um, Father Richard has asked me to introduce um, our sister speaking tonight. I'm going to introduce Sister Mary Madeline Todd, who is a member of the Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia, so our very own sister here, and it's been great to have her. Um, sister comes to us with a wealth of experience. Um, she's helped to coordinate several World Youth Days. Um, she received her doctorate in sacred theology from the Angelicum in Rome, and currently she's at an all-girls high school in Baltimore, Maryland, Mount DeSales Academy, and she's helping to form their new philosophy department and program, which is an exciting thing and a great blessing for those girls. Um, sister is a wonderful sister. She is a great speaker and speaks right to the heart, so I am so happy to have her in our community to speak with you tonight. Thank you so much, Sister Mary Madeline. Thank you so much. Thank you to Father Dorr for inviting me to be here and to speak with you all. Um, and for the sisters who have shown me amazing hospitality, um, it's been really wonderful to be here. Uh, I came to this parish many years ago um, when I taught at St. Cecilia High School um, down in National St. Cecilia Academy to go to the Destination Jesus Retreat. So many of you have probably, I remember there were more volunteers than there were young people at the retreat. And I thought this is one of the most generous parishes I think I have ever been at. Um, and I've always been impressed. In fact, I've bragged about this parish to people around the world because I've been able to study and work internationally. And I said, there's this parish in Indiana that I said is alive. Um, has so much love for the Lord, so many forms of prayer, worship, faith formation, outreach into the community and locally and abroad. Um, so for years I've actually been admiring you <laughs> um, and, and what your parish does. Um, but tonight I'm, I'm really blessed to come and be here with you. And I was really moved to be asked, I, I, at first I was kind of under the impression that I was gonna talk to you a little bit about being a Dominican. Um, and I realized that um, then that we're in the month of the rosary, so I thought, oh, the Dominican order loves the rosary. I'll talk to you about Our Lady. And then the talk kind of took on a life of its own. <laughs> um, so I'm going to kind of hopefully stay open to the Holy Spirit of what I think um, is the talk I'm meant to give you this evening. But let's begin with a prayer. Um, I know many of you just came from Mass, um, and here we are on this beautiful Sunday. And um, I know this is the last of your series of the four speakers. And I'm sure that if you're here, the Lord brought you here. I mean, that's one thing I'm very convinced. I go all over the world and give talks. And sometimes it can be the Australian outback with 12 farmers. <laughs> or it can be like down the road. Um, the last talk I gave was to the Catholic women's group of Maryland. And it was really sweet. I went back to teach in my classroom. And my students said, my mom said, you're amazing. <laughs> and I was like, well, praise be Jesus. That was the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, so let's just open ourselves to um, what the Lord wants to speak in this. Oh, sorry. A little technical trouble here. Um, what the Lord wants to say to us in this talk. I'm sure he brought you here for a reason, and I'm sure he brought me here for a reason. So I hope to be an instrument for you. So let us pray. As we open, I want to open with the Hail Mary because it goes all the way back to the 1200s that when St. Dominic was going to preach, he would open his preaching with the Hail Mary. And you might think, why? I mean, it's such a basic prayer, such a simple prayer. But Mary is the one in whom the Spirit made the Word become flesh. And when Dominic preached, he didn't just say words. 
um, they say that Dominic had the grace of the word. Um, and, and I think when you come to a talk like this, the Lord doesn't want to just like you to hear a lot of words. There's some word that's meant to take flesh in you. And when I give a talk, I pray to the Lord to be an instrument of whatever he wants to speak to you. And I am convinced that the Holy Spirit brought you to say something to you personally. It might not be the whole talk, but something in the talk is for you. So if we ask Our Lady to pray for us and with us, that the Holy Spirit will also overshadow us, and that whatever word the Lord wants to speak in each of our hearts and minds tonight, we will let that word become flesh in us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord our God, we thank you for calling us here tonight. I thank you for each person who said yes to coming to this talk. I ask you, Lord, to clear out all the distractions that could keep us from hearing what you brought us here to hear. Holy Spirit, come and anoint my words, but anoint the hearts of those who hear, that the word of God may be made flesh within us. And we ask the powerful motherly intercession of Mary as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, undoer of knots. Saint Dominic. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So knots, tangles, webs, chains, you name it. We've all got them. We've got those messy bits of ourselves, our relationships and our lives that we really just don't know how to fix. Over 300 years ago, a man from Germany was in deep distress because his wife came to him and said that she wanted a divorce. Any of you who are married, but also those of us who are in the priesthood, in the religious life, Anyone struggling to live in fidelity to God's call, the baptismal graces of our life, know that sometimes knots come along in life that feel so undoable that we think we just have to give up. We feel like we just can't go on. And this man did what today might seem kind of off the radar for most of us. He went to the village church and he went to the side altar dedicated to Mary. And he prayed there that his marriage would be saved. I don't know how much he knew about what the real problem was, but he knew where to go. And he returned each week for four weeks to pray at that altar. And on the fourth week, some inspiration made him bring with him the traditional cord that was used in wedding ceremonies in Germany at that time that was tied around the arms of the bride and the groom. Now, I haven't seen something like this in a wedding ceremony. Maybe the closest thing I've seen is um, my cousin married someone in the Greek Orthodox Church, and they wore crowns when they got married, and their crowns were linked by a white ribbon. Okay? 
And the tradition was to take this white cord and bind it around the arms of the two people when they got married to symbolize that now they were bound together for life. Well, something moved him <laughs> to bring that white cord. And it was all stained with time. They had been married a long time. It was all tangled up probably in the drawer and, and knotted. And he lifted it up in kind of a desperation before Mary. And it was an image of Our Lady of the Snows. And he begged Our Lady to save his marriage. And as he was standing there praying, the tradition says, the cord actually became white. It was like it was made clean. And the knots came out of the cord. And he took this as a sign from Our Lady that she was resolving the tension in his marriage. And after that fourth visit to the church, when he went home, his wife, Sophia, was willing to work with him on resolving their marriage. And they stayed married. And they ended up raising their family together. And their grandson became a priest. And their grandson wanted to thank God for saving his grandparents' marriage. And so he commissioned their grandson this painting. You see it here today. He, they commission, he commissioned this painting of Mary, Our Lady, holding a white cord. And if you look at the painting, on one side, an angel is handing the cord to Mary, and the cord is all knotted and tangled up. And Our Lady is really gently just untying the knots. And then she's handing it off to another angel who's receiving the, the cord that's now very white and very untied, unknotted. What's interesting is this is in a little obscure church in Germany, this painting. And most of the world had never heard of it until a priest from Argentina who was studying in that region went to, to visit this church, saw this painting, was so deeply moved by it that he got a cop, took a photo of this, took this back to Argentina, promoted this in his parish, later in his diocese, and that priest happened to be elected Pope Francis and, and happened to spread this devotion to the world, a lot like John Paul II spreading the devotion of the divine mercy to the world. Um, and I think it's so poignant that at this moment in history, this kind of relatively unknown devotion to Our Lady should become widespread. And why do I think right now it's especially important? You know, whenever Jesus appears or Mary appears in the history of our, of our church, they always have some kind of a message for that generation. And I think even though this comes from three centuries ago, and always humans have had to struggle with the knottedness of our lives, why is it coming into world attention now? Well, if you think about it, where do you turn when your own heart, when your own lives feel very knotted? I think we all experience those things that feel like something I don't know how to resolve, something we don't know what to do with. Well, I have to be really grateful to God that even before I knew my calling to be a Dominican, which is the order entrusted with promoting the Rosary of Mary, I learned from my own mom's powerful witness that Mary is one of the best people to go to when you're facing life sufferings. When I was still a little girl, our family was going through some very hard times. And one day I was home, and I didn't think anybody was in my mom's room because the light wasn't on. 
So I went in quickly, and to my surprise, I found my mother kneeling beside her bed, and just in the light that was coming from the hallway as I opened the door, I could see the rosary beads in her hand, and I could see the tears running down her face. And she didn't have to say anything to me. I already knew that things were hard for her at that stage. But I'll never forget that day, because we learn so much more by what people do than by what they say. Many of you in this room are parents. Where do you turn when things are hard? What do your family members see about how you bear suffering? And that day, in my mom's unspoken witness, I learned and I believed that when life is hard, I should turn to my mother Mary and I should pray the rosary and that Mary would be with me and she would help me to undo the knots that I didn't know how to undo. So if I ask you, where do you turn when you have the knots in your life, most of the answers that probably, if we were being honest, would first come to our minds aren't bad, but maybe they're just not enough. Maybe when things are tough, we talk to friends. Maybe we talk to our family members. Maybe we seek out a therapist. Maybe we just try to escape, and there are lots of forms of escape that we seek. And maybe sometimes we don't turn to Mary because maybe she seems just a little too distant. I think sometimes as beautiful as the sacred art of our tradition is, as important it is that we have lovely images of Mary in our churches and in our homes, sometimes maybe we see Mary too much as the statuesque kind of woman with her lowered eyes and folded hands. But for me, the more I prayed the rosary and the more I came to know Mary as she is in the Bible, Mary I find in the page of the scriptures, I find in her a woman of incredible strength, of incredible compassion, and a woman who would be one of the best people possible for me to turn to when there are knots in my life. So I want to look a little bit at a couple of the scenes that we ponder when we pray the rosary, but maybe in a way you haven't thought about before. The Dominican order to which I and the sisters here belong not only emphasizes the praying of the rosary, but also highlighting the virtues. How do we live the virtues to grow closer to God in our lives? Now, if you, think, if you know a little bit about the history of our order, I'm not sure how much you know about the Dominicans. I heard that Father Luke Mary was here recently and told you lots about St. Francis. And St. Francis is very popular for great reasons. Um, and I find that the Dominican order is often a little more hidden in its history. Many people will know, like, St. Thomas Aquinas, or maybe they know Catherine of Siena. Um, but St. Dominic is a little obscure. And if you don't already know this, I think it's important to know about the Dominicans. We were founded to preach against a heresy, a false teaching, that was very rampant at the time when St. Dominic was alive. It was called Albigensianism, and it was a false spirituality. It was a spirituality that had a kind of tendency to separate out the physical elements of our life from the spiritual elements of our life. And in fact, it had great suspicion of the body, great suspicion of the things that are material, even to the extent of saying like marriage was bad, family life is bad, even the sacraments were considered bad because it was like you don't need these material things. And St. Dominic centered the spirituality of his order of preachers on the gift of the incarnation that God became flesh. 
And I, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not just like a mythological hero who just appeared in our world. He was born of a woman, the way every one of us was. And why is this so important to us here today? That holiness is not some otherworldly spiritualism out there. Holiness is in our day-to-day -day lives. Holiness is in our bodily existence being wed to the great spiritual graces we receive from the Word made flesh. In this body-soul unity. And Dominic was passionate about preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't know the truth, we don't know how loved we are by God. We don't know how important the reality of our day-to-day -day existence really is. How the sacramental graces are not just when we're at Mass. The sacramental graces are how you're living the grace of God right now in your day-to-day -day life. When you're cooking a meal for someone. When you're giving a hug to someone you haven't seen in a long time. You know, the embodiment of our faith is so real. And I think... What I want to kind of unpack is that Our Lady, when we enter into praying the rosary the way a deeply biblical way of praying the rosary is, the way John Paul invited us in his document on the rosary saying, let's sit in the school of Mary and learn what it is to walk with God very intentionally. There is so much we can discover from Our Lady. And so for each of the sets of the mysteries, I just want to take one of the mysteries to kind of say, how does that show us something about the undoing of the knots in our own lives. Because our Marian devotion isn't meant to be just like a kind of superficial piety. It's meant to be a deeply transformative way of discipleship, of walking with the Lord. So part one, when, how do we face the knots of life when the unexpected arises? I find it interesting that what we call the joyful mysteries of the rosary were actually some of the toughest moments of the lives of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny because when we look at them, we can say, okay, let's just think about what was going on in their real lives when these things happened. I mean, we all plan our lives to some extent. We have a kind of dream. We have a kind of thing we want to pursue in life. And for Mary, when the angel Gabriel appeared to her at the Annunciation and announced to her that God had chosen her to be the mother of his son— if we can really enter into what was going on in the mind and heart of Mary. I mean, we know that she was a bit afraid. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was startled by this. And Mary had not yet been living with Joseph. So even though they were betrothed, this, this was really difficult. And I often think probably one of the hardest moments of the life of Mary was between that beautiful moment when she said yes <laughs> to the plan of God with so much faith, because she didn't know how this was going to play out. I mean, we kind of see, like, the beauty of it, and there is beauty in it. It's magnificently beautiful. But imagine her. Um, I mean, she trusted God. She loved God. But she, he was asking something of her that was very difficult. And I think that that space between when Gabriel announced this plan and Joseph knew what was going on had to be one of the most painful moments for both Mary and Joseph. If you can imagine the goodness of the heart of Joseph, wondering, what am I supposed to do? 
He didn't understand what had happened. All he knew is that she's noble and beautiful and virtuous. He, I don't think he would have suspected her of doing something wrong. I think he didn't know what the mystery was. Okay? And in awe of whatever this was God was doing of her, he decided that he had to step out of that picture, divorce her quietly, right? And Mary, I mean, how many of us, God has asked something of us, but if we say yes, other people don't understand, and in that space between saying yes to God's will and the confusion, doubt, questions, misunderstanding of the people around us, Mary had to walk in profound faith. You know, I think sometimes we picture Mary as like she knew like all the beautiful glory of everything from the beginning. Well, she didn't. Um, she was one of us, even though she's conceived without sin, which is a huge grace. She, she had to walk in the darkness of faith. She had to watch God's plan unfold step by step, just like you and I do. And in that space where she didn't know how God was going to reveal to others what was going on, and she simply had to be in the space of saying yes to God, but not sure what that was going to look like, she had to walk in profound faith. And how many times in our lives have we tried to say yes to God but we just don't know where that's going to take us. And how many times has that cost us the misunderstanding of others around us? Even once that amazing experience happens of the revelation to Joseph in his dream of what has actually happened, I can't even imagine how relieved they both were when they would have discovered that this was God's plan and that God wanted Joseph to stay in the picture and they knew they could be there for each other. I think all of you who are families and especially trying to provide for your families over the years, when they had to face the lack of the material resources that they needed. I mean, I often think of Joseph was a carpenter. He was a craftsman. I like to imagine this, and I actually met another sister one time from a different community who said, I have the same imagination. And I was like, oh, I was like, can you imagine how beautiful the cradle Joseph would have made for the baby Jesus? I mean, he was a craftsman. He would have probably made the best possible um, place to lay them on this newborn child. I'm sure Mary would have gotten their home as comfortable as she could get it so that this baby would be welcomed. I mean, they were like in awe before the mystery of this child. And then what happens? A census gets called. Late, late in pregnancy, Mary has to make this long journey. Can you imagine what happened in the heart of Joseph when they got to Bethlehem and there was nowhere for them to stay? I mean, Joseph was the best of men, wanting to provide, wanting to protect, wanting to care for this woman and their child, and he couldn't even find a place to stay. And, and I often ponder the amazing faith they both had to have, because they had to let go of their understanding of how they would provide for the Son of God. I think every parent, every grandparent, you had a vision of how you were going to provide for the people in your life. And much of the tension of our lives is our, things do not go as we plan. A job change, a job loss, a, ch a relocation, things kind of don't go the way we plan. And when we look at Mary and Joseph, what do we see is that sometimes God is trying to show us maybe the way we thought we were going to provide, the way we thought we were going to manage things, isn't what God was asking. Because I often think, why did God let that happen? 
that this man and woman who would have wanted to give their very best for that little boy had to go a long journey and then they had to leave and go to a country they didn't even know where they didn't have a, I mean, when they got there, they would have been homeless, jobless. And I thought, how many people have been in that situation somewhere in your life? And do you realize you walk in very good company when you were in that position? And I believe that the Lord tries to stretch us and show us maybe what I want you to provide is not what you think. Because what did Mary and Joseph give Jesus? Maybe not the best home possible. Physically. They gave him their love. They gave him their obedience to God's will. They gave him a model of what it looks like to trust God in everything. And that's what they were meant to provide. I know we all have material stresses and strains. We all have things that come up that are not what we planned. And I do believe that the, when we ponder really the actual life of these people whose life is told to us in our scriptures, that we ponder in the mysteries of the rosary, we find a model of how to respond when life doesn't go the way we wanted, the way we expected. Secondly, sometimes we're called to help others with their knots. I want to ponder with you a little bit about the luminous mysteries, and I want to focus on the wedding feast at Cana. One of the biggest obstacles to helping other people with the knots in their lives, frankly, at this moment in history, is that we often don't even notice. When I ponder Our Lady at Cana, when I think about what was going on in that scenario, there they were, this magnificent wedding celebration, those of you who married, those of us who had our ordinations, our religious consecrations, those days are some of the most joyful, beautiful, wonderful celebrations of life. Everybody loves those days. They're full of joy, full of abundance. Now, I often think just on the practical level was part of the problem that maybe when they invited Mary and Jesus, they didn't know that all those apostles were going to come with them. I imagine those guys could drink a lot of wine. Um, and, and I was thinking, you know, what on the practical level happened that they didn't have enough? And I think that's a very realistic guess, that they weren't counting on all those guys, okay? But nonetheless, whatever was the reason for the cause of the lack of wine, what is so beautiful about Our Lady is that she notices now, I have to say something to you about the, every one of us, whether we're living in community, whether we're living in family, whether we're visiting with friends, neighbors. I really believe that one of the biggest challenges of living right now is that we have lost the art of how to be present to each other. And one of the biggest challenges for us all is we live in this technological screen-based world. You know, I, I can't even tell you how many times and in how many situations I'm in in my life that I watch people who are physically together and they're completely unaware of each other because every one of them is watching a screen. I, on the plane here coming to give this talk, I was kind of happy to see so many families on the plane. I'm not used to seeing a lot of families, I guess because it was a break time for some people from school. Um, people were traveling together. 
But I was sitting in the middle of, of a whole family that was traveling together. <laughs> and first, I thought, why is dad? He's sitting over here and the rest of the family's over here. Anyway, but I was flunk in the middle. But I could tell that they were, you know, I mean, they were traveling together. But it was fascinating to me that each one of them had a personal device and spent the entire flight looking at a screen and not communicating with each other at all. I think what I find even more astonishing is I've been out in places where you go to eat and I can see people, everyone's at the same table. And tables are places of amazing fellowship. I lived five years in Italy, and I have to say Italians get this, okay? That a meal is a time of fellowship. In fact, one of our sisters who studied with me in Italy was one time working on homework while she was trying to eat, and her Italian professors came and were like, suara, pasta, pasta. You know, and they were like, no, never, never do you eat and work. Like, what is your problem? And I was like, oops, we Americans could really use a little help. Um, but, I, but I thought, even worse, there we are all together, sitting at tables together, and everyone's on their phone. And no one's even talking to each other. And why I say this is, you know, I, I, I teach high schoolers and I read a lot of psychology because I'm trying to help my students. And I, I've been reading some books lately about the epidemic of loneliness in our culture. I think it's one of the big knots we're dealing with right now. And I mean, look around. There are wonderful people everywhere. <laughs> and if you get to start meeting people and knowing people, like, it doesn't take long to start to find a connection. <laughs> Just tonight, I got connected with some people who have some really interesting history that ties into my own. And, and, but if we're so lost in the screen world that we don't even see each other, what are we to do? On another note, if we become so busy that we don't take time for the people, but the Lord has convicted me on this, Sometimes I have so much work to do that I don't even spend time with my own sisters in community. I told the sisters this today. I said, there was a time I was so on the road doing so many talks, and I remember I would come home to the mother house in Nashville, and you know there's a problem when the, the first thing every sister would say to me is, I never see you. I never talk to you. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> And I actually talked to my superior about it, and I prayed a lot about it, because, and I felt Jesus was saying to me, take a step back from it. Like, for a while, you need to reground yourself in prayer and in community. Because what are you bringing if all you're doing is running from this to that? You know, here in this parish, you have one of the best places to rediscover the meaning of presence, because you have a perpetual adoration chapel. He's always there, just waiting. And I think adoration is one of the most beautiful forms of prayer. Because no matter what you're going through, no matter what's happening, you can just look at him and he can look at you. And I beg you, if you don't take even just a few minutes to go into the adoration chapel, do it. And I challenge you to ask Jesus, who is really present there, to teach you how to live real presence. Real presence to God when you pray. Even if, it's better to pray a few minutes really present than to spend long hours trying to pray something and you're thinking of everything else. Okay? Learn how to be really present to God, and I, I promise you, it makes you learn deeper how to be really present to the people. I challenge you. Look at your day. Look at the way you interact with the people you live with. Look at the way you interact with the people you interact with. Are you really present? Because if one of the biggest knots as a whole culture we're, we're experiencing is loneliness, 
We have to begin with the most simple things. Mary that day at Cana noticed. She wasn't on her cell phone. She noticed. And then what comes after the noticing is that she knows where to go when she sees people in need. I think sometimes we're afraid to look around and really notice because if we were to look into another person's eyes and really ask them what they meant, how their day is, and mean it, we're a little bit afraid of what that might take. I was just talking to the principal at my school recently, and she said, oh, I was reading a business book, and it was saying, um, when people ask you how you are, you're just supposed to smile and say, great. And I said, that might work for business, but that's not life. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? And I said, I don't want you to tell me you're great if you're not great. How am I ever going to reach out to you if I just think it's always the same answer? And I think that is sometimes why we get afraid to really be present. We're like, if I notice that person's alone over there, I have to do something about it. If I know that person's going through a tough time, I might actually have to help. <laughs> but, you know, isn't that what we're here for for each other? Isn't that what human community is about? Isn't that what family is about? And I think Mary knew something that if we could discover this, we will not be afraid to recognize what's going on with other people. Mary did not have to have the solution herself. Neither the plan nor the material resources. Mary wasn't like, hey, I'm going to go out and buy um, a bunch of gallons of wine for these people. You know, Mary didn't have the plan, nor did she have the money to fix the problem. But she knew what to do. And what did she do? Son, they have no more wine. I find I use this, prayer, this line in my prayer a lot. I see one of the teenagers I teach, and I say, Jesus, she has no more wine. There's no joy in her eyes. You know, I see someone in the community who looks kind of alone. Jesus, she has no more wine. I think they're out of wine. And then what does she say next? Do whatever he tells you. Now, sometimes when you go and say, Jesus, they have no more wine. Jesus, my friend is sick. Jesus, that person looks really sad. Sometimes he's going to pull the loaves and fish on you, right? The apostles, what, do we can, what can we do about all these hungry people? We've only got a couple loaves and fish. Be them yourselves. Sometimes Jesus is going to tell you that. And every time he does, you're going to say, I don't have enough. Every time Jesus sends you and says, this person has a need, you're going to feel like, I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. But if Jesus sends you, listen. And it's on him to multiply the loaves and the fish. All you can give is what you can give. But Our Lady just says to us, do whatever he tells you. And so sometimes all we can do in a situation that's hard for somebody else, when we see their knots, is we can just bring them to the Lord. Lord, your child is suffering. You know, I do know that that's sometimes why we find it hard to get involved in other people's lives. I mean, I teach in a big school. My students come to me. This relative is so sick. This person's out of work. This person is going through something horrible. This person's losing their faith. This, and I'm like, what can I do? Well, not a lot. But what can I do? Jesus, they have no more wine. And I'll do whatever you tell me. And I'll ask for the help of the people around me that I think can help. 
and I'll trust that God is working in that. I believe that when we ponder Our Lady at Cana, we can rediscover what it is, the power of presence to those around us, and utter simplicity in interceding for them. Part three, the knots of pain and suffering. As much as we all try to avoid suffering, and should, it always seems to find us, right? Whether it's suffering of the loss of a job, a lost opportunity, a dream that will never come true, our health, our well-being, and especially the loss of a loved one. When we're suffering, it's very hard not to get turned in on ourselves. It's very hard not to focus more on the pain than on the love we give and receive within the pain. Now, we all know Mary was no stranger to suffering. When we ponder the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, we see the enormous weight of the sorrow that she bore. Even before the days of Christ's passion, though, she lost the loving companionship of her husband, Joseph. It's interesting. I was giving a talk once, and there were, I was to a women's group of retreatants, and there was a woman there who had been widowed for many years, and she didn't ever think about the fact that Mary was a widow. She's like, wait a minute. How do you know Joseph died? And I was like, well, by the time Jesus is 30, <laughs> there's no one. We know he was there when Jesus, Jesus was 12, but by the time he was 30, he, was, he wasn't in the picture. And certainly he wasn't there at the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, Mary's entrusted to John. So obviously Joseph is not in the picture anymore. And this woman, it was amazing. She had lived her whole life as a Catholic and, ne and never realized for the many years she had lost her own husband that Mary had lost her husband. And she said, I'm going to talk to her now about that. And I said, yeah. Mary understands exactly what it is to lose a loved one. And even when Je Jesus as a grown man left for his years of public ministry. Most of us have experienced when life draws away from us the people that we love the most, when they have to relocate for work or for studies. She must have known how hard that was. She also had to bear the suffering of watching, once he did start his public ministry, how people responded to her son. Yes, there were beautiful disciples, friends of her son, but there were many, many people who were against him. And she finally had to stand and watch his very loving goodness repaid with very cruel violence. And what does Mary teach us in those moments of suffering? She teaches us a lot. But I think she shows us in a special way the virtues of patience and perseverance. She doesn't walk away. She doesn't turn against God or others. She simply stands within the suffering. I think when St. John tells us in his gospel that Mary stood at the foot of the cross, there's a world of meaning in that standing. Because Mary went through not just her own suffering, but probably what all of us experience is one of the hardest things in the world is when someone we love is suffering and we can't take the suffering away. And yet she continued to trust in God in those times that she didn't lose sight of the fact that God is at work even in the midst of that pain and the loss. I think we can be very real with Mary. I mean, she is our spiritual mother. I think we can talk to her about our tears, our questions, our frustrations, and our sorrows. And I think what she can lead us to understand 
is that all of that does not have to take you away from God. God is big. <laughs> I mean, I kind of think, like, you can, you can bring him your real heart. You do not have to pretend in front of God. He already knows what you're going through. Our Lady stands with us at the foot of every cross. I remember my great aunt was suffering at the end of her life, and her husband had died some years before, and her son had died before her. And so she was on her own, and she was living at the house of my aunt. And her cancer was so advanced that she really was towards the end of her life. And I was visiting my aunt, and I saw my great aunt, and she asked, after we were all just visiting together, she, and I had never had a one-on-one -on -one personal conversation with her. And my, my, aunt, my great aunt, well, most of my family is Protestant, and she, um, and she, she said, Sister, could I have a, she called me sister, which most of my family doesn't call me sister. Anyway, she said, can I have a word with you when, after everybody else goes away? And I was like, yes, of course. And I went in, and I was really surprised because she started to cry, and she said to me, I don't know why God left me in this world when my husband's already gone, and even I had to say goodbye to my son, and now I feel like I'm just a burden to your aunt who's caring for me. And I started to weep, too, because I thought, she thinks of herself as a burden. And I looked at her, and I said, Auntie, have you ever talked to Mary about what it's like to lose your husband and your son? And she looked at me, because, of course, in her, in her Christian tradition, she didn't really think about Mary a lot. And I said, she's the mother of Jesus. She's the wife of Joseph. And she lost both of them, too. I said, I don't know what it was like for her to stay in this world in those years after they were both gone to God. But I know she wasn't a burden. And I know John, young John would have taken care of her with great love. And I said, Aunt Dee, look at Aunt Debbie's life right now, my aunt. I said, she's actually going through a lot of suffering in her own life right now. And taking care of you is what's giving her the chance to love in a profound way. You are not a burden. And she just looked at me and she said, I've never thought of talking to Mary about it. And I said, I promise you, Auntie, sit with her. Sit with her and let her tell you how she bore up under those sorrows. And I promise you, you're not a burden. I said, Auntie, when you took care of people in your lifetime, did you think they were a burden? She said, no. I said, when your son was dying, did you think of him as a burden? She said, no. I said, would you take care of him 20 times over if he needed that? Of course. I said, do you not trust that Aunt Debbie's heart is growing because she's caring for you? And she just said, thank you, sister. And I do believe she actually only had a few more weeks after that, and she had profound peace. Our Lady didn't take away the pain and the suffering. She stood with her son in the midst of it. Sometimes our world tells us that compassion is ending the suffering. Sometimes our culture even tells us that compassion is ending the life of the one who suffers. Compassion means to suffer with, literally. Passio in, in Latin, to undergo, to suffer. Come is with. 
Let Our Lady teach you how to stand in compassion. Whatever suffering you are going through, it is a real part of our faith to unite that to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Unite that to the suffering Mary bore as she sent the cross. And that is the suffering that redeems the world, not because it's suffering. I think sometimes we can think God must be pretty cruel if he wants everybody to suffer. But it is not the suffering itself that redeems the world. It's that when confronted with the worst possible sufferings, Jesus kept loving. Mary kept loving. Real compassion is to bear up under whatever crosses come and keep on loving. And if we let God do it in us when we don't have the strength to do it in ourselves, that is really what we're called to. And I think if we sit with Our Lady and ponder that way of approaching our sufferings, we're given a kind of strength we would not have. Part four, undoing the knots of discouragement and despair. When the knots of life seem simply too much, we can be tempted to just give up. Discouragement is one of the hardest sufferings to endure. I found when I was growing up, I could always pray the joyful mysteries of the rosary, and I thought they were beautiful. When I was growing up, there weren't the luminous yet. <laughs> um, the sorrowful mysteries I could always relate to. Because, I don't know about you, but I knew there was suffering in life, and I always found strength in standing with Jesus and Mary. But I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I always found it a little hard to ponder the glorious mysteries. They seemed kind of far removed. Now, I knew that we were made for heaven. I knew that someday we want to be with God in heaven. But I think I just couldn't kind of imagine what that was like. But I think there's something incredibly important for us to unpack in pondering Our Lady and the Glorious Mysteries. And today I want to focus on the third glorious mystery, which is when Mary was gathered with the apostles in the upper room at Pentecost. This is Our Lady after she had witnessed the cruel death of her son. She has seen the cowardly response of the apostles. She had been there through this great suffering and loss. But she had also witnessed the utter triumph of the resurrection. She knows firsthand at this moment, at that moment when she's gathered in the upper room, that life is in fact stronger than death, that love does triumph over every form of hatred and sin. And so there she is in the midst of the apostles, the early church, the disciples, to show us what hope looks like. I think hope is one of the most forgotten and most needed of the virtues. Hope is not just optimism. Hope is not just thinking, well, everything's going to be fine. You know, sometimes when we're in the middle of a difficult stage in life and people are like, it'll all be fine. It makes us mad, right? You're like, it's not fine. <laughs> okay? Hope isn't optimism. Hope is that come what may, God is with us and he is faithful to his promises. That's hope. Now, why I want to look at that scene for a moment is Mary there in the upper room with the apostles. And it, with the exception of John, she's sitting there with the people she knows were the very best friends of her son. The hand-picked, chosen inner circle of Jesus. And she's sitting there with them knowing better than anyone has ever known that when he came to the most difficult moments, they fled. 
that when he needed them the most, they were so afraid, they did not stand up for him. They did not do what's right. But she also knew from her own life experience, let's go back to that moment when the angel Gabriel came to her. She knew that the Holy Spirit is the one who renews the face of the earth. And that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life where there is no life. That the Holy Spirit can come in our weakness and can utterly transform us. She knew from her own experience that the Spirit is who can make the Word become flesh. So when she saw those apostles whose frailty, failures, brokenness, cowardice, she knew better than anybody. She also knew exactly what would make them the men of God they were called to be. She knew that the apostles and all the members of the church would only become who they were meant to be when they too were overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. So what did she do? She waited and prayed. I say this because we are living in a moment when the media is full of bad news. I mean, it's pretty hard to find good news in the media. Every day, we're fed the failures of our world, the failures of leaders, the failures in our own church. Seldom are the stories of heroic goodness told, but daily we hear a failure. And then we look in the mirror, and sometimes it feels like the same is true. Sometimes when we look at ourselves, we see our mistakes, our shortcomings, our knots. And sometimes we see that more than what God can do in us. And I want to invite you tonight to let Mary sit with you in that upper room. We know that they were afraid. The disciples and the apostles were afraid. I think many people today are very afraid. I teach teenagers who are usually the most optimistic bunch. And because of the things they take in in the media all the time, I mean, they were literally saying the other day, well, it doesn't matter if we work out this problem of the society, or whatever, because the world's, we're going to destroy the planet in a few years anyway, and whatever. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> anyway, and they're like, yeah, sister, haven't you heard? I'm, and I'm like, well, I don't know. Jesus could come again at any time, so I'm trying to stay ready. Um, but I, I think it's very interesting that even those who should be the naturally most um, hopeful about the future, because they're taking in so much media, are, are really bogged down in all the problems. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to not get bogged. If we, who are trying to live intentionally for the Lord, are losing our hope, what hope is there for the people who don't know the Lord? You know? If we are seeing all the bleakness and darkness and none of the light and the possibility and the grace, what hope is there that someone's going to come and say, we do have reason to hope? You know, when I think about, we just celebrated the feast day of St. John Paul II. I mean, that man lived in a time of brutal darkness. And I think he was one of the greatest witnesses to hope. I mean, George Weigel called his biography that, right? <laughs> um, because, I mean, he could have looked at his own personal life. You know, his mom died when he was just a little boy. His older sister died before he even knew her. He was a teenager when his older brother died because of giving medical care to the sick and poor no one wanted to take care of. By the time he was in his late teens, he and his father were the only living members of his family. And then he was only 20 years old when his dad died too. John Paul lost his whole family, 
by the time he was 20 years old. He's this guy who's totally into sports, literature, theater. The Nazis rise up, come into Poland, forbid the people. I, I got to go visit Poland, and I remember standing in the square outside of the university, and, and the priest who was showing me around, he said, sister, this is the room right here where all the university professors that he would have been studying under were brought together and arrested by the Gestapo on the same day. Most were instantly killed when they got to the concentration camps. Then, it's illegal for him to participate in the things he wants to participate in, right? The government is so corrupt, so oppressive under Hitler, he can't do theater, so he goes into an underground resistant movement. He discerns his call to the priesthood. He's not allowed to study for the priesthood, so he goes to the underground seminary. Had they discovered that he was studying in the underground cemetery, he could have been shot on the spot. Okay. He watches the Nazis obliterate his country. They come free of that. He watches the, the Russian communists take over in his country. He watches wave upon wave of political oppression. And what does he do? He hopes against hope. What does he do? He looks at Jesus Christ. What does he do? He says it all the time. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. My brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Not because you and I have the strength in ourselves. We do not have the strength to solve the problems of our world. We can't even solve the problems in ourselves. So how in the world could we fix the world? We can't even undo the knots in our own robe. But there are those who can. And I do believe that the more time we spend in the presence of the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, the more we fervently pray for our church, for our world, for ourselves, for healing, for grace, the more we look to Mary and let that amazing disciple of Jesus Christ, the Mary of the Bible, the Mary of our faith, the Mary who had so much faith, be to us our mother. You know, John Paul, when his mom died, his dad took him to a monastery. I got to go to this monastery, and there's this beautiful side chapel with this lovely image of Our Lady in it. And his dad pointed up at the image of Mary, and he said to little Carol, she's your mother now. And John Paul took it seriously. And I think, where did he get so much faith? Where did he get so much courage, so much hope in such a dark page in history? Well, he had a really good mom. And he loved Jesus Christ. Because the closer we grow to Mary, she will always lead us to her son. She will always take us to Jesus. When we are weak, when our hearts and our lives feel full of knots, we need to remember that the power of God is at work in us. I mean, remember her in that upper room. There they are. They're calling on the Holy Spirit. These men who were so afraid, they would not even admit they knew Jesus in his darkest hour. These men who abandoned him, except for John, at that very moment when he needed them the most, these are the men that when the Holy Spirit came, breathed over them, when the fire of the Holy Spirit caught in their hearts, these are the men who went out and boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ, 3,000 people baptized in one day. We don't have the power to heal our world. We don't have the power to undo the knots in ourselves. But Our Lady is a powerful intercessor for us. The rosary is a powerful tool in changing our own hearts and in changing our world. And we do not have to be afraid. The Spirit of God can transform our weakness. When you say, I'm afraid, 
I'm afraid at my job to say that I really believe. I'm afraid to pray grace in public because somebody might make fun of me. I'm afraid to say to my kids, no, we're not going to just let you use the phone, however. I'm afraid to, like, make a choice to more publicly witness to my faith. I'm afraid to stand up for what I believe in the workplace. Well, we're in good company. There's lots of followers of Jesus Christ who are afraid. But do not be afraid. The Spirit of God can do in and through us what we can never do of ourselves. So not just in this month of October, but really every day, I hope we could find some school, even if it's just one decade of the rosary, some moment of your day to sit in the school of Mary. And you don't have to limit yourself to the, rose, the mysteries that our church gives us. They're wonderful. But you might want to choose another event in the Bible. You might want to choose the flight into Egypt. You might want to let the Lord work in your mind and your imagination and let, and let Mary speak to you about how, if you open yourself to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, you can be changed. When Mary prays for us, when we look to her for her motherly example, we receive the strength we need to be joyful in the Lord, to take the next step in faith, even when we don't see what's ahead, to be truly attentive to the people right in front of us, to be ready to help when we can and ready to intercede always, to be patient in suffering, and to be full of hope that the Lord is true to his promises and that we are never alone. My brothers and sisters, when we, like that man 300 years ago, lift up the knotted cords of our lives, Mary gently unties the knots. She sets us free. Free for what? Free for radical, complete surrender to God, whose power at work in us can do more than we even imagine. Since they brought us this amazingly beautiful image of Our Lady Undoer of Knots to be to here today, tonight. I want to invite you, as we conclude this talk, I, you know, the imagination can be distracting in prayer, but can also be helpful in prayer. And I think I want you, I want to just invite you to picture what in your life has become knotted, what seems kind of tangled, what's confusing to you or hard to you. What do you feel like you don't really have the power to undo? Something you're worried about about yourself? Something you carry about that you're concerned for the people you love? I want you to imagine those knots. And if you look at this beautiful image, and you can come up after the talk and maybe look at it more closely. <laughs> you know, if we're like on the side of the angel handing Our Lady that very knotted, kind of tangled confusion of our minds and hearts, just wants you to entrust it to her. Listen to her who says, do whatever he tells you. And let her undo that feeling of tension, that knottedness, so that you can receive the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is what you were made for. You know, if we Christians, if we don't walk in the glorious freedom of the children of God, something's wrong. You know, I know there's a lot to be worried about and concerned about in our personal lives and in the big picture. And one, one final thing, I, a, a priest, a friend of mine shared this with me, and I say it in a lot of talks I give because I think it's important. He said, I like to challenge people that for every hour you spend of taking in any form of media, you spend a parallel hour in Eucharistic adoration. Now, you're laughing because you get it. 
who has two hours? So that means you probably only have five minutes to look at the media. <laughs> you got five minutes. And, and he said this. He said, why? Because if you're just taking in all this anxiety-producing, stress-producing, fearful, angry stuff, your like, humanity is reacting to that, right? And what's happening? Your fear, your anger. I mean, how many, I, mean I, don't, I don't think I have to ask you to raise hands. How many people feel afraid when they hear the news? How many people feel angry or hopeless when you, read, when you listen to something on the media? Well, if you're filling your mind and your heart with that and you're not bringing it to the Lord, then you just have all that, like, tension, but you haven't done anything with it. And if we just bring it to the Lord, you know, whatever's in your mind and heart. For one, you don't have enough time to double everything, so you're only going to spend a little time on the media if you've got to go to the Adoration Chapel for every time you spend it. And actually, it'll do you a great good if you spend less time with the media and more time with the Lord. I promise. I promise. It will do your heart great good to spend less time on any form of screen and media and more time with the Lord. And when we do know the things going on in our world, and sometimes because of our business or sometimes our place in life, we have to know a lot more than other people. Well, don't do nothing. Bring it to Jesus. Suddenly have no more wine. Do whatever he tells you. Let Mary untie those knots. And I do believe that if we do that, we can open ourselves to peace. We can open ourselves to freedom. We can learn how to walk with the Lord with greater intentionality. And, and in a sense, then, we're going to be like Mary to the world. We're going to be those bearers of Christ. You know, do we bring hope to the people we meet? When we meet people, do we share with them the, the, the good news? Because the bad news is everywhere you are. But the good news is desperately needed. And what is the good news? Jesus Christ is risen. Love has triumphed. Death is not the final word. Life love. The power of God is at work. And if we rediscover that hope, and I do believe in the school of Mary, I do believe at her feet we can re rediscover this, then we will bear Christ to the world just as really as she did. So after my talk, I invite you to really ponder for a minute, just, well, actually, we can do it right now. Like, what are some of those knots? What are some of the fears, some of the worries, the tensions, the difficult relationships in our lives, the questions we don't know the answers to. And let's ask Our Lady to undo those knots, to intercede for us that we would be obedient to God's will in everything, that we would have deep faith, deep hope, deep love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, I praise you for bringing us here tonight and praise you for the amazing gift of your son Jesus and his beautiful mother. Jesus, on the cross, you entrusted us all to your mother. Holy Spirit, fill us with a new faith that no matter what comes, God is present and at work in our lives and in our world. Holy Spirit, breathe over us a new hope Then we know God is faithful to his promises. Holy Spirit, inflame us with love and make us instruments of God's goodness for every person we meet. 
and Mary, our mother, just with your gentle, loving heart, with your good, kind hands, untie these knots that we carry. Now we may walk in joyful hope as you did. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady of Mount Carmel, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Sister, before you go, wait a minute. Um, th th thank you very much. First of all, does anyone have any questions about the Dominican life, about Sister, about her travels, you know, whatever? <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm coming over there. What was it you said in the beginning about the origination of... St. Dominic and what he was fighting, you called it something and I didn't get that. The Albigensian heresy. Just that. <laughs> <laughs> Albigensian. Um, there was a town called Albi in southern France where, that was kind of why this heresy became that. And it was essentially a form of dualism. And if you study the heresies in the church, there's lots of forms of dualism. But basically putting matter against spirit to the extent that it said, like, everything material is evil. So, like, the body is evil, and the sacraments are evil, and the outward signs of the church are evil. Um, and it kind of preached a sort of, if you want to be spiritually perfect, you have to be, like, purely spiritual. And that's an error. I mean, because when you have this kind of idea of, like, a spiritualism that's not authentic Christian spirituality, authentic Christian spirituality is deeply incarnational, that when we're living according to God's grace and God's will, it's in the flesh. Like, it matters what I do. Because when you separate out body and spirit, like even St. Augustine faced part of that, right? There was another form of that in his time. You know, the idea that um, in his day they were saying, well, there's only a few people who are meant to be spiritually elite, and they live this very austere life, but I have no control over my body. It doesn't matter what I do with my body, etc. And I think really John Paul II, when he taught the theology of the body, I always say the Dominicans were really preaching the theology of the body back in the 13th century. And John Paul II actually went to the Dominican University that I studied at in Rome, um, and he was taught by Dominicans. And I think he has a very Carmelite spirituality and a very Dominican intellectual training. It's a great combination. Um, but he, um, and so... I think, like, this comes back in many forms. And, I mean, I think even, like, the kind of revital revitalization of, like, some of the spiritualities that are very um, esoteric and kind of out there, kind of New Age-ish, kind of Eastern spiritualities, are very popular right now. But they're often, like, your spiritual life is something separate from, like, your day-to-day -day physical life. Well, that's not Christian at all. What's Christian is the incarnation. Like, God became flesh. And the way I live in my spiritual life is through my body. <laughs> it's through the way I serve you, I treat you. Like, and, and my body and my soul are one. And really, it undermines even the belief in the resurrection of the body. Um, so Dominic really was a very, like, the, the, the early Dominicans, you see it in the writings of Thomas Aquinas, even in the, the theology of St. Catherine of Siena, that they were very incarnational, that... Um, that Christ, the Word made flesh, present to us in the Eucharist, present to us in the sacraments, is sanctifying our whole lives. It's not just some vague spiritualism. It's the life we live. 
<laughs> the concrete life in the family, the concrete life in our homes, the way we're embodied. Um, and I think that that's a really important spirituality. I mean, this is a true story, and it just gave me, I, um, I wondered for many years, did I really discern my vocation correctly? Because I loved Mother Teresa. She was such um, an inspiration to me. And in my childhood, of course, she was one of the great saints visible to us. And, but every time I tried to pursue a vocation in the missionaries of charity, like the doors never opened. <laughs> and every time I tried to pursue a Dominican vocation, the doors opened everywhere. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I became a Dominican. But I always had these doubts in my mind. And just because I wasn't sure, I felt like loving and serving the poor is so beautiful. Um, and I just love that. And when I was in Rome working for World Youth Day for Pope John Paul II, I happened to run into Cardinal Ratzinger one day, <laughs> and Pope Benedict, um, later Pope Benedict. And he was coming home from work in the CDF, and he had his little briefcase. I was like, well, what's in that briefcase? <laughs> anyway, but I, um, and the sister I was with was from Germany, and so she, she knew him from different interactions she had had. And she said, um, I said, is that Cardinal Ratzinger? And she said, yeah. She said, do you want to meet him? And I said, I'd love to meet him. I read his books. I think he's amazing. So as he was coming down the sidewalk, since he wasn't Pope yet, he didn't have guards all around him. Um, and she introduced me. And of course, he speaks fluent English. He's, and he looked at me and he said, you must be a Dominican. And I said, I am, um, your eminence. And he said, are you a Nashville Dominican? And I was like, he knows our congregation. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I was, I was pretty shocked that he even knew. But actually, we had a Jesuit chaplain who was um, a translator who worked with him and a dear friend of his. Um, but I said, yes, yes, Karen Ressinger, I'm a Nashville Dominican. And honestly, he looked me in the eyes. Of course, I never met him before. He can't know me at all personally. He looked me right in the eyes. And he said, do not look around and think you have to do everything that needs to be done in the church. And he said, God is going to raise up the people to serve the poor you were called to be a Dominican. And he said, the church and the world have never needed the preaching of the truth more than they need it right now. So go and be a good Dominican. That was 21 years ago, um, nine years into my vocation. But I, I tell that because not to go off on myself at all, but the Dominican vocation is very needed because the truth is not a weapon. The truth is love, is given in love. And I think Dominic, Dominic, it's funny because people have this idea that, like, the person who defends truth is going to be, like, this, you know, hard, tough, whatever, you know. Dominic would weep when he would say the Mass. He was so moved by the presence of Jesus Christ. You know, Saint I said, Dominic was a Spaniard. I said, Thomas Aquinas was a Southern Italian. I said, have you ever met a stern Southern Italian? <laughs> I was like, Southern Italians love to party. I mean, I was, like, I was like, when I lived in Italy, I spent a lot of time in the South at the Navy base down, in, uh, down there in Naples. And I was like, Southern Italians love life. I was like, Thomas Aquinas was not a cold, stuffy intellectual. <laughs> he was someone who was passionately in love with the Lord and defended the truth because he knew that if people are led into these errors, they're losing their faith in Jesus Christ. They're losing the sacraments of the church. You know, if people think marriage is evil, like they're blocking one of the greatest goods of bringing new life into this world, you know? So the, the Dominican charism is, is deeply about defending the truth, but not in some kind of like a, a triumphalistic vain way, but it, with profound love for the fact that truth is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and I think even our devotion to the rosary. It was like a proclamation of the truth. Um, and so I think that's why one of the reasons I love like praying the rosary with the, with the reality of Mary, the way we find her in, in the words of scripture and recognizing the reality of her depth of virtue and strength is, is a way of truth, a way of, 
a true model of what it's like to walk with Jesus Christ. One other question, because sister has long answers. <laughs> but it was a good answer, wasn't it? It was really Father. good. <laughs> Anybody else have a question? How do you address family members who have left the faith? How do you address the family members who've left the faith? Um, many of my family members never were Catholic, um, and most of the ones who were no longer are, so it's actually a very relevant question. Um, you know, to be honest, when I was a young sister and we used to go home and visit our families, um, my formator used to say, you know, sister, a prophet isn't, you know, not without honor, is without honor in his own home, <laughs> you know, and, and they said, you aren't going there to be a teacher, you're going there to be you, but you're going to witness, and I really believe that when people have questions, they'll ask them, but I believe that one of the most powerful things we do is witness. Um, I think you know, I, I remember this Dominican priest giving a talk one time, and he said he had actually been in the hospital, and he was dying. Um, he had peritonitis, and he actually saw Jesus. I know you, you don't have to believe in a private revelation, but he claimed this, and I believe him. And he heard the Lord say to him, is there a reason you should still be in this world? Is there a reason you're not ready to come to the kingdom? And the priest said to him, I would love to go to God, but Maybe the Lord would want me in this world so that my nieces and nephews have a priest that they can look at in their family. I thought that was a very powerful, because most of my family, as I said, is either not Catholic or has fallen away. And over the years, I didn't try to say to them, this is what the church teaches. But what's fascinating is I just come among them as someone who obviously loves my faith and tries to serve them and love them and treat them with the goodness of God. And then they started asking me questions. You know, and they ask me more and more. And I think the power of witness is when people know we are a practicing member of our faith and they see a kind of peace and joy the world cannot give, I think this is what changes. I mean, like, look at the great saints in history. Edith Stein was an atheist. She was raised Jewish, became an atheist. She became interested in Christianity when she watched the way a Christian spouse mourned the death of, a, of their spouse young and she's like, how in the world are they so joyful in the midst of so much pain? And a friend of mine down in Nashville, she is the mother of seven living children. She has several of her children who've gone to God by miscarriage. And um, she was telling me this because I would invite her when I was teaching down in Nashville to come be a pro-life witness to my, my students. And she said that her, her doctor, her OBGYN, would every time she was pregnant be like, you're having another baby. <laughs> and was like, when are you going to let me, like, sterilize you, or when are you going to let me put you on the pill? This is ridiculous. You have all these children. And this doctor harassed her for years. Um, and she never changed doctors. I'm not sure why, but she, she remained with this doctor. And after the seven children had been delivered, she had been through all these years with her husband in a beautiful marriage, really. Um, and she mourned the loss of the several children at the end. She lost by miscarriage. The doctor said to her one day, you know, I've been really hard on you. And I have really pressured you. And I have to say something to you. In 25 years of treating you, you're the happiest, most joyful person I have ever met. And you have changed my mind about what openness to life should look like. And I only wish I had known this at the beginning of my medical practice instead of at the end. And I say that because witness, witness. I mean, if our faith is real, it's going to affect the way we treat each person, it's going to affect 
the way we respond to the sufferings that come in our lives. And I think that's the most powerful. Now, if someone's open to having a conversation about the faith, to refer them if they have questions. But I think if they don't ask the question, if we kind of are too aggressive and, and, and they don't want the answer, if people don't want to know the answer, it's, it's usually not very helpful. <laughs> um, but I do believe that when they see, I mean, look, it's, it's happened from the beginning. You know, right in the Acts of the Apostles. How, why were many of the first people who came to Christianity Christians? See how they love one another. So I think if we're really living our own faith and interceding powerfully. I'm a big fan. I mean, prayer can change people like nobody's business. Um, because, you know, you never know when a person's going to open to that grace. So be ready, not pushy, but witnessing. That's what I would say. One more question. Anybody got one more question? Um, when, when you pray your rosaries, how, how do you meditate on your virtues? Because I know that, you know, the, the, the certain, I know that there's prescribed virtues for each mystery. Um, but when you, like, I guess what are some tips that you use to kind of focus on the different virtues? Well, what's interesting is there are different virtues you could ponder with different mysteries of the rosary. So I think, like, there's some prepared prayer books that will have certain virtues to pray for, and that's a beautiful thing. And basically, who wrote those books would have probably been saying, well, I can see this virtue at work in this. I mean, I think you could even take one virtue and just focus on all the mysteries for that same virtue. Like, for example, if one of the traditions of the church is in addition to making an examination of conscience to make what's called a particular examine. And in our formation, that's to training of if there's a certain virtue you want to grow in. So say, for example, you're like, gosh, I could really grow in patience. If you all ever want a great um, like examination of conscience on how loving you are, take 1 Corinthians 13, fill in your name in the blank and see how far you get. I never get past the first one, patient. Okay. And I'm like, shoot, I know what I got to work on. <laughs> okay. And and actually, it's a beautiful thing to say, if there's a virtue that, like, the Lord is drawing your heart to want to grow in, it would be a great thing to ponder all the mysteries in light of that one virtue. Because the thing is, Jesus and Mary exhibited all the virtues. So even though we can align the mysteries of the rosary with a particular virtue, um, and in fact, our congregation sells a little rosary prayer book where I did that. Like, I, I kind of, like, lined up not only virtues, but gifts of the Holy Spirit and fruits of the Holy Spirit with each of them. It's, it's on our website. of our. I'm not trying to self-promote here. But I did it because it's a deeply Dominican tradition. And I used the scriptures, the writings of Thomas Aquinas, and the writings of St. Catherine to unpack that. Like, what is that virtue? What is that gift of the Holy Spirit? Um, but I think if, like, the Holy Spirit's moving you in your own life to say, gosh, I've really been down. I want to focus on hope. You could literally use hope for all the mysteries of the rosary. I mean, I would say there's no wrong way to pray the mysteries of the rosary except not to do it, okay? Um, but, but, but I would like, I think it would be a beautiful thing to let the Lord guide you in that because, for example, if you're just reading the short passage of scripture that goes with that, if, I like rosary prayer books that have art in them because I really like to look at an image when I pray, um, and just kind of ponder, like even say, show me the virtue, Holy Spirit, show me the virtue that you want to highlight in this. I mean, because they're all there. I mean, maybe you are finding yourself, finding it hard to be humble, and you look at humility, look at humility in every one of the, those. Um, so there's lots of different ways you can do it. Um, and I kind of let the Holy Spirit lead on that, you know. And, um, and sometimes, you know, and actually the, the saints would say when you're praying the rosary, they, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. Like, you can focus on the words of the prayers themselves, okay. You can focus on the mystery of the rosary. 
you can focus on a particular virtue in relation to the mystery of the rosary. Uh, you know, Jose Maria Escrivel, St. Jose Maria, would say, you know, put yourself in the scene. So would St. Ignatius of Loyola. Put yourself in the scene and see how would you react if you were there? Like, how do you see yourself in that scene? Um, I remember a Benedictine nun uh, when I was living in Australia said, to, said one time, you know, sometimes we feel like I have to pray a certain way, but the basic thing is you just need to pray. <laughs> like, and that sometimes your heart will be drawn into different ways of praying. And, and I think sometimes just pondering the words themselves. I mean, Hail Mary is really powerful. This is, a, this is my closing story because I think it's beautiful. And I actually more than once was the Lord. I felt like I was supposed to tell this earlier. Um, my grandmother had fallen away from the faith when talking about, and long before I was born. Um, and there was a very serious tra tragedy in her life. And at the time of that tragedy, she had gone to the church to ask for help. And I think the priest misunderstood. And literally she believed that the door of the church was closed in her face and that she could never come back. And so my grandmother spent the rest of her life, that was in her 20s, and so for the next 60 years, she never joined another church because she always knew she was Catholic in her heart. She read the Bible every day. She prayed the rosary every day. But she didn't belong to the church, and she thought she couldn't. And so when, I, when she came down for my first vows as a sister, I, I tried to say to her, Grandma, like, this can be reconciled. And she always just felt like the church didn't want her. And so for about 30 years, I prayed every day for her, too, that she would be healed. And, and at the end, when she had cancer, I was able to make a pilgrimage to Lourdes. And I offered that pilgrimage for my grandmother to die in the church. Like, I knew she was dying in Christ, but I thought, I knew she shouldn't leave this world without being reconciled to the church. And what's so amazing is my father, who's never been Catholic, um, was there at the hospital with, with his mom, and he knew that she grew up Catholic, and he knew the story of why she felt like she couldn't return to the church. And even though all different ministers and all different good people of prayer had come to pray with her in the last days of her life, the day before she died, my dad said, Mom, do you want me to call a priest? And even though they were an hour and a half away from the, lo the closest parish, it was a little hospital out in a remote part, that priest drove an hour and a half. He didn't send someone out. A priest came, and the day before she died, she was received back into the church, received communion, and she died with the sacraments of the church. And I was living in Rome at the time, and I remember when I heard this, I just wept. <laughs> and I went in the chapel, and I knelt down, and I thanked God. And it was the first time I realized just what it means to say now and at the hour of our death every day of your life. And I was convinced that the daily rosary my grandmother prayed, even though she for 60 years was not formally part of the church, um, that Our Lady had honored that. And that the very hour of her death, Our Lady just undid that knot. <laughs> that Our Lady just opened that door right back up. I mean, I thought, what moved my never Catholic dad <laughs> to say, do you want a Catholic priest? And what moved that good priest? And I wrote to the priest from Rome. I said to him, I know, because my dad said to him, do you have a card? And he actually had a card. <laughs> and he gave my dad a card. And my dad sent it to me in Rome. And I wrote to the priest I've never met. And I said, you're the answer to 30 years of daily intercession for my grandmother and 60 years of her daily praying the rosary. And I can't thank God you went that day and that my, my grandma died in the church. And so I, I think it transformed for me even the prayers themselves, even apart from the mysteries and the grace, just to say to Our Lady, pray for me. Pray for all of us now and at that moment when we are going to God. And I do believe she will always honor that. Um, so... Thank you. Thank you very much, sister.
as Sister said, this concludes our four weeks. We may try this, continue to try this um, in, in other, um, maybe during Lent, who knows, we'll see. So just, uh, you'll, you'll hear about it because my big mouth. Uh, so uh, thank you all for, for, especially those of you who have come all four weeks. I hope you've been as spiritually renewed as I've been uh, hearing these talks. Um, if you could also uh, do us the courtesy of helping us uh, pull the ch uh, chairs up and put the the tables down, and at the doors there are baskets for those uh, donations that help us uh, keep these talks going. So thank you, and have a good evening. <laughs>